welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Welcome along to Gateway this morning. If you're visiting with us, we do extend to you a really warm welcome. Glad to see you regulars back. Um, Over the last few weeks, we've been doing a series that we've called Small Groups That Change the World. And uh, this is part three of that series. Up until now, I've been talking about the whole idea of a creative minority, Uh, a small group of people within a dominant culture that their beliefs, their educational system, all all kinds of aspects of that culture that are actually um, very, very different to the small group. And that small group within that dominant, sometimes idolatrous, seductive culture has had in history massive impact. And uh, we've been looking at what constitutes a creative minority. Uh, Margaret Mead, the uh, anthropologist, said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed people can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. And uh, thus far, I've looked a little bit at Daniel and his three friends in Babylon. Last Sunday, we talked quite a bit about the Clapham Circle, uh, a thoughtful group of committed evangelical believers uh, in England in the 1700s who dramatically changed their world. As, As we've looked at these creative minorities, one of the things that I've suggested to you is that there are common denominators, whether it's... um, Jesus' disciples, or whether it's the Clapham sect, or whether it's um, Daniel and his friends in Babylon, if you look at those groups, there are common denominators that make them creative minorities. And different authors have used different terms to describe these common denominators. Um, Six emerge with regularity. They are these. They are committed to a particular narrative. They are covenantal communities. They are innovative and creative. They are ethical communities. They live under a distinct sense of authority and they have a profound sense of purpose as they relate to that wider dominant culture. And through this series, what I want to do is look a little bit at some of those common denominators. And this morning, I want to pick up the first of those ideas and say that creative minorities are deeply, profoundly shaped by and connected to a particular narrative, a particular story. Now, when you talk about narrative and story, sometimes that's a stumbling block for people. Um, For them, a story means something fictional, a bedtime story, a likely story, a tall story. If you find the word narrative or story difficult, then perhaps I suggest to you that you substitute it with with the word worldview. Because what we are talking about is a way of seeing and understanding the world. Human beings, it seems, have an inherent need to make sense of the world and our experiences in it, to give them, and as a result of that, us, some sense of coherence. And it seems that our minds as human beings are habituated to try and find meaning in our world. Ordering the events of our lives to make sense of them is arguably a central human need. Every culture has its stories by which its peoples try and make sense of the world. And we have always had this need to find meaning in the great sweeping narratives that inform us as to why we are here, what's wrong with the world as we experience it, how can it be fixed, where are we heading? 
As I said, another way of describing this is calling it a worldview. It's like having a set of glasses through which we see the events of our world and it becomes our guiding narrative and it colors all our perspectives and perceptions. When a narrative changes, okay, when we are subject to a narrative, when we, when we have a change in narrative, we call it a paradigm shift. And we grow up with a way of seeing the world. It's given to us by our culture. It doesn't mean it's firmly fixed and can't be changed, and we can go through what we call a paradigm shift. And that occurs when the dominant way of seeing the world, that's the big story, is rendered incompatible by the incoming data and our experiences. And as a result, we look at the big story and think that's got to be changed. Now, a classic example of a paradigm shift occurred in the field of cosmology when we rejected the Ptolemaic cosmology of the, of the, the sun going around the earth and we embraced what we call Copernium theology, uh, 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 cosmology where we recognized, in fact, it's the earth and the other planets that go around the sun. Now, there was one paradigm and as the information began to come in, it didn't fit. And Copernicus was the first man to recognize that something's wrong with the dominant way of seeing the world, and ultimately, of course, it got changed. The data and the experience just couldn't be fitted into the existing and dominant narrative, and it had to be changed. Now, when a narrative is changed, it's, it's massive, and it's really done easily or painlessly. It's equivalent to a conversion. And it may be sudden, as in the case of St. Paul, but perhaps more often, it's a gradual and usually very painful process. So, big stories. Now, some of you might be sitting there and thinking, hey, Don, you know, I mean, get with the, the program. We're postmoderns. We've been taught that there aren't any big narratives. And when people talk of these big stories, all they are doing is trying to grab at power. And we've been taught to reject those big stories. Well, I've, I've pointed this out before today, but that is in itself a big story. It's a, it's a big story of suspicion, disbelief and cynicism. It's the big story that rejects all big stories. Friends, you can't get away from a worldview. It's a bit like philosophy. All of us are philosophers. We mightn't think about it, we mightn't articulate it, but in actual fact, we all embrace a worldview and a way of doing life. Our postmodern culture, our dominant culture, if you like, uh, offers us a story of of course, suspicion and disbelief, but also one of narcissism, of consumerism. Its constant message goes like this. You are number one. You deserve it. Follow your dreams. Follow your hearts. Your happiness is numero uno. And we function inside a worldview. Leonard Sweet says it's the story that gives us our identity, that we, in fact, have a storied identity. And it's through the story, the big picture story that we embrace, that we learn to understand ourselves, that we learn to decide how we should live. So we are informed, persuaded, enlightened, connected, and moved by the big story that we embrace. False stories, wrong stories, have a massive implication and can be incredibly destructive on people's lives. 
Brian Boyd says this, he said, we are living in a world awash with junk stories, and this is leading to something like a mental diabetes epidemic. Let me try and illustrate. I realize this is sort of not always easy to kind of get your head around, but let me try and illustrate what I've what I'm talking about, and I hope you'll stick with me through this little aside, because if you aren't really concentrating now, in about three minutes you're going to come to and wonder how on earth I'm talking about what I'm talking about. But, but stories are so important. Um, one of the difficult pastoral ministries is troubled or failing marriages. Now, that's not new, of course. I've been in ministry over 40 years, and it's, it's always been that way. The last few decades, one of the reasons that marriages seem to have taken this um, direction into what I would say is increased difficulty, I believe is related to a cultural story that most of us are marinated in. And it has to do with this idea of radical individualism. This, this idea that we are, in fact, numero uno, that my needs, my desires, my happiness tops the list. Marinated as we are in that story, we come to marriage. <clears throat> and we might not articulate this, but we are looking for marriage to satisfy my needs, to find my longings, uh, to, to satisfy my longings, it, a relationship in which I might find myself. It will make me complete. And you hear people say, I found my other half. I've heard over and over again in the last few decades, people leave their spouse and their main complaint is they didn't fulfill my needs. This is part of the story that we've imbibed. And if you believe that story, if you believe marriage is about meeting your needs primarily, then I'm sorry, but you're in for a rude awakening. To embrace that story probably means unconsciously that you are coming to this relationship primarily to get something rather than to give something. And marriage actually is about learning to serve, learning to give. I don't want to reawaken really bad memories for some of you, but, but fifth form biology, mitosis and meiosis, remember those things? We never could get them right, could we? But meiosis is about the process of cell division when the human body is preparing for reproduction. And it has to do with the sperm and the egg coming together and the formation of a new human being. Every human cell, you probably know, has 46 chromosomes. When in the process of meiosis, the cell divides, the male cell divides and gives up half of its chromosomes so that it only has 23. The female cell does exactly the same. It gives up half of its chromosomes, has 23, comes together and forms a new entity with the 46 chromosomes required for life. Before the process, those cells were complete with their 46 chromosomes. In order to form a new entity, they each surrender half. Half. And in a way, marriage is exactly like that. You don't find your other half, you lose your other half in this relationship in servanthood and surrender so that you can come to oneness. Now, the thing is, many people in our culture have embraced this radical individualism of it's all about me and my needs, and that's the story that they bring to this relationship. 
And they believe that they come perhaps somehow even not whole, but that this relationship will make them whole. What they fail to realize is that we are complete as singles, but in order to make marriage work, we surrender a significant portion of our individuality to create another entity that is complete and whole, but in a different sense. And what I notice is so many people want the joys of marriage but aren't willing to embrace the cost of losing themselves. Their wants, too many marriages, because of the cultural story that we are marinated in, have come together and it isn't about two becoming one, trying to enjoy oneness. And it doesn't happen. Marriage is, is invariably a disaster story becomes even worse when children come along. We want the joy of children, of course. We just want the joys as we want the joys of marriage, but we don't want the limitations and the responsibilities that impinge upon my freedom, my happiness, and my fulfillment. And increasingly, people are choosing between those things. They are opting out of having children. I'm sure you're aware that in the West, fertility rates have dropped to, uh, to the extent that we face uh, an impending demographic disaster. The story. Remember Bill Clinton when he was running for president and he had this little mantra, it's the economy, stupid. Well, friends, it's the story, stupid. We have embraced a radical individualistic story. So coming to marriage, which cannot endure radical individualism, we simply destroy it. The story really, really matters. Now that's my little aside, okay? Back to the story. The Bible is God's big story. It isn't primarily a book about rules and principles and axioms and proverbs, although it has all of those. It's primarily a story. The Bible contains more narrative literature than any other genre. Nearly half of the Bible is about stories. And my belief, my commitment is this is God's story. It's an utterly true story. It's a critically important story. It's a magnificent story. It's the greatest of all epics, richer in plot, more significant in characters and descriptions than any humanly composed story could often, could ever possibly be. But it's not always an easy story. There are times it's a complex story. Gordon Fee and Douglas Stewart in their book, Reading the Bible for All It's Worth, suggest that through the Bible story, we come to understand God's work in creation, how he works among people, and that the stories of Scripture give us a hands-on knowledge of how God works in our world and what he's like in his character. And they suggest that the story is being told at three distinct levels. So at the top level of this story is the ultimate narrative. It's kind of like the bird's eye view of the whole picture. And at this level, we look down and see initial creation, the fall, we see the, the pervasiveness of sin, the need for redemption, the answer to our problem, Christ's incarnation and sacrifice, and then the final consummation of God's purposes. So this is the giant story at the top level. Secondly, they say there's a middle level, which is they call the major narrative. And the key aspect of the middle level centers on Israel as God's chosen instrument to bring that blessing and restoration back to humanity. So at this major level, we have the call of Abraham. 
We have the story of the patriarchs, the enslavement in Egypt, the exodus and the journey to the promised land. We see Israel's story of sin and disloyalty and then restoration with repentance, ultimately ending in exile. Finally, we see the Messiah's arrival. So big picture, major narrative, and then thirdly at the bottom level is the individual narratives. And here there are literally hundreds of stories that fit within the context of the two upper levels. So you have Ruth and Esther and Samson and Solomon and so on. So what we have, they suggest, in the Bible is the individual narratives within a major narrative within the ultimate narrative. It's all about story. And what Scripture reveals through these stories is, firstly, God is knowable and wants to be known. And that secondly, we are invited into this story. This story is to be the glasses that we wear through which we understand all of life. From this story, we understand things like where we came from, our origins. It gives us our anthropology, if you like, the way we think about human beings. It tells us that out of love, we are created by God in the image of God. And therefore, as a result of that, we have intrinsic worth. That was what motivated Wilberforce and the Clapham sect in the seeking to release the slaves. They understood something about the big story and our origins and that these Afro-American, these afro uh, Americans, I was going to say, but Africans going to America and slave, they, they are our brothers, and that they should never be treated like this. The story mattered for them. We understand through this story that our worth and that the worth of a person is not tied to biological fitness as in Darwinism, and that our value is not about economic metrics or social status or political affiliation as in Marxism. This story not only tells us about origins, it tells us about sin and redemption, what's wrong with the world and how it can be fixed, what we call in theology soteriology and Christology. It also tells us where we are going and where this thing will end, what in theology we call eschatology. So this story gives us a way of seeing things. Bishop N.T. Wright says, a good deal of Christian theology consists in the attempt to tell this story as clearly as possible and to allow it to subvert other ways of telling the story of the world. The story you embrace will shape you. It will affect your passions and your desires. What you value and see as important will be the will be determined by the story that you have embraced and allowed to permeate your life. And to be invited into God's story is to live out of and to be shaped by it. When, when we embrace the Bible story as our worldview, we refuse to allow the lesser stories that our culture offers us to shape us. We reject its idolatries and its seductions, and the whole of life is approached as a disciple of this story. And the questions that we ask and the positions that we take are informed by that story. So we come to things like, how do we approach social media as a disciple? of this story? How do I parent as a disciple of this story? How do I use my money as a disciple of this story? How do I date and view sexuality as a disciple of this story? The story informs the way we live our lives. When you look at the creative minorities that I've mentioned, whether it's Daniel or the Clapham Circle or the Moravians, all are committed to a deep, sense of this biblical story being theirs. 
Daniel and his friends are surrounded in Babylon by a dominant, idolatrous, seductive culture. And yet as you read that story, you see them refusing to allow that culture to hijack their identity. And if you go to the end of the book, and by this time Daniel's probably in his 80s, he's probably been in Babylon for six to seven decades. And in Daniel chapter nine, he prays this prayer. And the notable thing that strikes you about the prayer is the language is a complete identification with Israel's story and God's story rather than the Babylonian story. Let me just read a few verses out of Daniel 9. Master, great and august God, you never waver in your covenant commitment. Never give up on those who love you and do what you say. Yes, we have sinned in every way imaginable. Yet we've done evil things, rebelled, dodged, taken detours around your clearly marked paths. We've turned a deaf ear to your servants, the prophets, who preached your word to our kings, our leaders, our parents, and all the people in the land. You've done everything right, master, but all we have to show for our lives is guilt and shame, the whole lot of us, the people of Judah, the citizens of Jerusalem, Israel at home, and Israel in exile, and in all places we've been banished to because of our betrayal of you. Six decades in Babylon, and he's praying this prayer that so profoundly, deeply identifies with God's story. He has not allowed his identity to be hijacked. And I think one of the reasons that these guys were such a powerful force in Babylon is that they knew what to embrace, what to say yes to, as I talked to you about the other week, and what to say no to. And those yeses and nos were shaped and, and informed by the stories. It's so clear as you read this with whom, and, uh, uh, with whom his identity and loyalty lives. When you, when you read about the Clapham sect and Wilberforce and his friends, you cannot help but come to the conclusion that flowed directly out of this deep commitment to the biblical story. Ford Brown said, promoting evangelical Christianity, and by that I mean the story, was their one great cause to which all else was subservient. Their concerns were driven by two motives, one, to promote true religion and save souls, two, to make life better for the people, for people and to make the world a better place. Everything they did flowed out of their deep commitment to this story. To study the Moravian community is to see a small group of believers deeply committed to the biblical story to allow it to change them and then from their lives it flowed out uh, to touch others outside their immediate uh, reach. So deeply embedded were they in this story that many of them left kith and into the far corners of the world and we're talking about the 1700s, not the 21st century where travel was, was perilous. In Germany, in a place called Hernhont, which means the Lord's Watch, sent missionaries out all over the world. The, the first two who went, a man by the name of Leonard Dober and another by the name of David Nietzscheman, they went to the St. Thomas Island in the Caribbean in 1732 to share the gospel with the slave population. They were so deeply moved that these slaves had no access to the word of God and to this biblical story. And so they went, quite prepared initially at least to be sold as slaves so they could reach the slaves. Now it turned out that they didn't have to enter into slavery 
And as the ship pulled out to head toward these islands, these two men linked arms and they cried out, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Deeply moved by the story, they went and gave their lives. That, that phrase, may the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering, became the cry of that little community, and it provided, uh, or it produced a tide of missionaries. 22 of the first 29 missionaries that left the little community in Hernhunt died. They called this season the great dying, but still they came. By 1760, community had begun, 226 missionaries had gone out. This is from a community of not more than 600 people. They had gone out to places in Greenland, Lapland, Georgia, Suriname, the Guinea Coast, South Africa, Algeria, North America, and Ceylon. By the end of the 18th century, over a thousand missionaries had been sent out from Hernhunt and other Moravian communities. And the impact of these missionaries was significant. In the Caribbean alone, 13,000 slaves became believers. Their devotion and commitment to the biblical narrative inspired and was directly related to Charles and John Wesley's conversion, impacted significantly George Whitfield, and those three men became the catalyst of what we call the Great Awakening in the United States and the Great Evangelical Awakening in, in, uh, in the UK. William Carey, who became the father of modern missions, was greatly impacted and inspired by the Moravians. This incredible commitment to share the gospel and change the world came out of their deep and profound commitment to the Bible story. Friends, the story matters. What story you are embedded in will shape your life. Now, I suspect that some of you might be thinking, Don, you're preaching to the choir. You know, we're here because we believe the story. It's why we're here. And I would want to say I'm certainly hopeful that that is the case. You know, however, that a however is coming, don't you? However. Perhaps I'm too much of a, a, a cynic, but I suspect that for many people in church, while they might nod in agreement to all that I've said when it comes to the big story and the answers to the questions of where do I come from and where am I heading, how they live on a daily basis is actually quite different. Resort to what we might call folk religion. And let me explain that as I conclude the message. If you travel in Africa, Asia, notice this phenomena that we call folk religion. If you walked up to a farmer in rural Indonesia and you asked him, what's your religion? I, I would suspect that without doubt he would probably answer, I'm a Muslim. I believe in the Islamic worldview, the Islamic big story. However, if you were to stay around and you were to watch him and his family operating in various circumstances on a daily basis. For example, when somebody becomes ill or his children are sitting exams or there's some kind of relational difficulty or he really needs some success in his business, you would notice that in many instances that farmer doesn't go to the mosque and he doesn't go to the imam to receive help. Rather, he resorts to the thoroughly pagan practices that his ancestors engaged in before the big Islamic story came to their area. And that might include things like charms or spells or astrology or shamans or witch doctors or offering to local gods. And we call that phenomenon folk religion. So there's the big story that they 
tip their hat to, but at the street level, folk religion is what functions. And you can see exactly the same thing, for example, in the Philippines and in South America, where you find Roman Catholicism and folk religion mixed in, in sometimes a very unholy way. These people are living with two different realities when it comes to their belief system. The high, the high religion, the big story that deals with the overarching questions of life, and then folk religion, which deals to their day-to-day -day realities, the challenges of everyday life, illness, droughts, plagues, broken relationships, business success, and so on. So you say to me, Don, what has that got to do with us? Because surely we're not into shamans, witch doctors, and so on. We aren't into folk religion. Well, perhaps we are, and we don't recognize it. How many people do you know that would say Christianity answers the big questions of life for them, but in an everyday life, it has very little bearing on the way they live? And when it comes to day-to-day -day level, it actually is the folk religion of radically individual that drives them. And we turn to the modern-day shamans, the magazines of our celebrity culture for life-shaping tips on everything from beauty to parenting and how to spend your time and your money and, to, and, and how to exercise your sexual capacities. Big story, yep, we tip our hat to Christianity. Street level, we operate out of our cultural stories. Okay, let me, let me make you a little more uncomfortable. You say, I believe in the big story. How does that impact your prayer life? Deafening silence. Now he's becoming legalistic. If I were to tell you about how these creative minorities functioned in terms of their prayer life, I suspect you might think it's extreme. You know, the Moravians had a, an around-the-clock prayer meeting, 24-7, and it didn't go for a week, it didn't go for a month, it didn't go for a year. It went for 100 years unbroken. These people believed the story. They believed in prayer. At a street level, they prayed. In the creative minorities that were the monastic movements of the Middle Ages, young people from all over Europe left secular life, took vows of self-denial and poverty, and these monks and nuns would rise early in the morning and engage in all kinds of spiritual exercises and, and disciplines. They believed in the story, and they gave their lives to it and for it. Again, us postmoderns tip our hat to the big story, but at a street level, it is our cultural stories of individualistic happiness that drives us. And the thought of significantly shaping our day, heaven forbid, getting up really early to engage in prayer and spiritual disciplines seems incredibly extreme. And I can feel an and yet coming on. And yet, if you do happen to get up early, you will find many of those same people out running, jogging, uh, hitting the gym, where they will be sweating, exerting, groaning, straining, and pulling, all the while paying for the privilege. Why? Because the cultural story tells us that a buff body is far more important than a desirable and fit soul. I'm not arguing, by the way, against gyms or joggings or any form of exercise, and I'm not really deliberately trying to make you feel guilty. If the hat, fit, if the, if the hat fits or the shoe fits, wear it. But what I am saying is that many, many people are involved in, involved in folk religion when it comes to the story that shapes their lives. And we can never, we will never be a creative minority affecting our 
dominant culture unless we are fully embedded in the biblical story and unless we allow it to inform and shape our lives, not just at the big story level, but at street level. And I'm not talking about perfection, I'm talking about direction. Musicians might like to come and rescue me, please. It seems to me, at least, that the choice is clear. We can be seduced by the Babylonian stories or we can be committed to and shaped by the biblical one. We can be shaped by our culture's collection of stories and we can end up with muscular six-packs, a well-groomed Facebook page, a collection of digital photos and a library of downloadable songs and movies, a digital memory that can be erased at the click of a mouse, shallow people in a shallow culture. Or we can believe the big story, immerse ourselves in it, Choose community over individualism, Christ over self, servanthood over manipulation and domination, and mission over consumerism. The choice is ours. And I want to finish not by insulting you, but by saying, it's the story, stupid. It's about the story. These creative minorities were deeply embedded in, shaped by that story. They didn't allow the cultural stories to seduce them. I look around the church in the West and I see a large group of people who, for the most part, I suspect, are completely seduced by the street-level stories of my happiness, me. And all of this stuff is about me. We treat church like that. I didn't get much out of church today. I didn't think the worship was good. It just really didn't do anything for me. And so what I might do is go and try another church. You hear that language all the time. It's driven by story. And the story is everything's about me. And I'm sorry, folks, I don't mean to burst your bubble, but it's not. It's about God's story. We've been invited by grace to participate in it, and it's got to shape us and make us different people. And when we embrace this, it will affect everything, from the way we go to church, from the way we worship, to the way we treat our spouse not looking for them to meet all our needs and to make me complete, but recognizing it's about me giving up my life to serve so that the two of us can actually become one and not simply be two struggling for oneness without giving up our radical individualism. It's all about the story. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.